We continue our series from the book of Philippians, To Live is Christ. And this morning we're going to be dealing with the subject of our Christian conduct and how we as Christians are to live so differently from everyone else in the world because Christ is in us and we are to live to be Christ-like. And we're going to be turning to Philippians 2 this morning, verses 12 through 18, verses 12 through 18, where we're going to be looking at uh, six questions that I'm going to ask you that we can all examine ourselves this morning regarding our own conduct. Six questions we're going to ask regarding Christian conduct, and we're going to kind of do a spiritual examination to see how we measure up, and you all have to do this personally, how you measure up to these things. And these questions are taken from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul says, therefore, meaning, okay, we've just heard about Christ's humility and Christ's exaltation and what it takes to be Christ-like. Therefore, he says, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming through your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too may be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> In a few weeks, I get to do this yearly thing that some of us do on a yearly basis. Something, boys and girls, I look forward to every year. I have a doctor examine me. My physical condition, and I've found out over the years when I was 30 and now when I'm 66, a whole lot of things happen in between that time. And it used to be I would run in there and I could run back and my wife said, how did it go? And I said, you know, the normal, everything's fine. And I would take pride in the fact that I take no medications until I turn 66. And I'm sure when I go in to see my doctor in, in a couple weeks, he's going to say, Jim, what have you been eating? Have you been not eating the things I told you? Because your blood sugar level is still high. Are you taking the medication that I gave you? Have you been behaving and doing what I asked? It's his job to examine me physically and to help me to live a healthier life. He tells me every time I go in, this is my job. My job it's to keep you healthy, and you need to do everything I say. And my wife reminds me of that, of those words as well, when the doctor gives a report. 
This morning, I want you to step into Dr. Busker's office. And we're going to do a spiritual examination. And there's all kinds of things that God needs to check up on us from time to time. But the one thing we're going to talk about this morning is, is our Christian conduct. In fact, the book of Philippians is all about that. How we should conduct ourselves in a world that's bent on evil, in a world that is warped, in a world that is crooked and not straight. We're going to be examining ourselves according to these verses of Scripture and specifically our conduct. And as I mentioned, I'm going to be asking six questions that come out of these verses. First of all, from verse 12, the simple question is, are you working out your salvation? Are you working out your salvation? Now, you should say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor Jim. Did I hear you asking, are you working out your salvation? I thought we are saved by grace through faith, not of good works. I thought that we're already saved. What's this thing about Paul telling us to work out our salvation? I thought it was worked out already. Is there something more that I need to do? Is there something more that I can do so that I can save myself? There are some people who believe that. But let's be clear what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that you have to work out your salvation in that sense. Your salvation and my salvation, for those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's already been worked out, right? It's a done deal. This is that doctrinal term of justification. Jesus steps in our place, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness because of his death on the cross. We are saved and only saved because of the perfect work and obedience of Jesus Christ, period. Our salvation has been, in this sense, already worked out by God in Christ. That's not what Paul is talking about. You see, there's nothing more that you need to do, there's nothing more that I need to do or can do in order that we can be saved. Jesus did it all. Understand this. Jesus did it. We receive it by grace. But, Paul says, listen. There is now something that you need to do as a result of what Christ did. And this is the meaning of working out your salvation with fear and with trembling. You see, when Christ died for us and we receive him as Lord and Savior, we already positionally stand right with God. In that sense, when God looks at us, he sees perfect people because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. What we have to do now is, where we are positionally, it's work towards that. It, it sounds kind of awkward, but that's what it means. You don't work out your salvation. You work, or you don't work for your salvation. You now work it out. Justification, the act of God, where we're declared righteous on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Paul's talking about salvation that needs to be worked out, he's talking about sanctification, becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. And, and you've got to work at it. Sometimes it's easy once you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior to become passive. Like, well, I'm saved. Why should I do anything? Why should I get in God's word? Why should I pray? Why should I join the church and the like? I'm already saved. I shouldn't have to do anything, right? Paul says, listen, no, that, that, that's the wrong approach. That This matter of conduct matters. This is who you are in Christ. Here's where you're at. 
And now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's a very important and necessary task. You get in the Word, you pray, you get into Bible studies. Now you want to grow as a Christian and mature. And as you go through your lifetime, you should be going like this. Uh, I think it's Corinthians where Paul says, you've got to aim for perfection. That's your aim. And you keep aiming and you keep moving. Some of you may still be back here. Because you say, why should I do anything? I'm saved already. You need to grow in Christ. Become more like him. And he said, you do that, but working it out with God who is working in you, the Holy Spirit. And that's that sanctification being made holy part. He says, continue working at it. Keep at it. And some of us may be, as we check our condition of our spiritual health and the condition of our lives in, the, in this regard, some of us may have got to step it up a little bit. You've gotten off the spiritual treadmill. Huh? You stepped off it. And God wants you to grow and become more Christ-like. Secondly, verse 14, are you doing everything without grumbling? Everything without arguing. Since I've become a grandfather, I read a, I'm getting a whole new realm of, to my library. And it's not works of Calvin or, or, or Luther or the like. But it's, it's a children's books. Uh, somebody by the name of, what's his name? Roger Hargreaves. Name sound familiar to some of you? Cute, cute array of series of books for kids. And, and, I, and I read any number of them to my grandchildren. And he has, a, he has two sets of books, right? Series of books. One, one's called Mr., right? Mr. Me. And the other one is, is Little Miss. So, so, for example, boys and girls, for, for Mr. Me, he talks about things like Mr. Greedy, Mr. Sneeze, uh, Mr. Nosy, Mr. Messy. And for Little Miss, I'll have things like, and I like this one, Little Miss Chatterbox. Are you a Little Miss Chatterbox sometimes? Little Miss Chatterbox. Little Miss Giggles, Middle Miss Bossy, Little Miss Trouble. The one that caught my attention while preparing this message was the, was the one that said, Mr. Grumble. Huh? Do everything without grumbling. And grumbling is something, let's be fair to everyone first, is something we all do at times. Okay, we can't point at, at one particular, two particular letter writers and say, there's those grumbly people. Let's first do an inward check because this is a condition, a spiritual condition we all have to deal with. Sometimes we just grumble. We don't know what else to do. We're angry, we're upset. Life isn't going the way we want it. We take it out on our spouses or if we're single on friends, we just are a bunch of grumblers. Paul knew that. That's right. He's writing the church in, uh, in, in, Philipp in Philippi saying, look, you've got to stop the grumbling. I hear there's a lot of it going on over there. Stop it. I did a study of this Greek word in particular, and how it was used in the Greek language, both in, in secular and, and uh, non-secular world. And, and listen to some of these definitions. This is what Mr. Grumble is like. Griping. Murmuring. Same word used in the Old Testament, like when Israel murmured against Moses. Finding fault with people. Mr. Grumble. Mean-spirited. Speaking against someone. Mr. Grumble, to engage in a suppressed discourse. Mr. Grumble, a heart that is filled with secret and sullen discontent. And if Mr. Grumble 
is left alone and unchecked, <clears throat> it becomes a restless evil. Just what the council was talking about this morning. We have some grumblers that have gone, I think I remember Steve mentioned about even in this way, to almost a satanic level of grumbling. One, two, maybe more anonymous letter writers who, who spew out satanic, venomous language against many people here this morning. Messengers of Satan, that, that's what they are. Messengers of Satan meaning to destroy. They mentioned our staff, they mentioned the council, they mentioned the search team, they mentioned Kurt Ritzma. Absolutely no good. Some sad, sad bitterness inside of somebody's soul that has them captured as slaves of Satan. They don't possibly know the way of how to approach someone when there's differences and as a Christian, speak about them openly with each other, as Matthew tells us. Um, I don't know how this person can... can not, can't possibly be at peace. And as Steve mentioned, it's a matter of, if you get these letters, you're going to recognize them right away after you've gotten a few. Best to throw them away or hand them in to Steve and to others. And um, as mentioned, to pray. Well, I think we all need to pray because this is a brother or a sister of this body. Pray that um, we can love them and pray that God will open their heart to see their sin and come in forgiveness and seeking forgiveness. Do everything without grumbling, without being mean-spirited. To the glory of God the Father. Murmuring is part of the devil's music. Third question, verse 15. Are you seeking to become blameless and pure as a generation, and in a generation that is warped and crooked. I, I think Paul had in mind, because since he was a Jew, he, he knew ex the Old Testament extensively. I think he's, he's pointing back to Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 and 5, where the very same thing is said of the generation of Moses. Same words, although in Hebrew, Moses lived in a warped and crooked generation. Paul says, this is a generation we live in, my friends in Philippi and those speaking to us today through God's word. We live in a generation that's just the same. It's warped and it's crooked. Our generation, you have to, don't have to live here long to understand that we live in a warped and a crooked generation. Things aren't straight. Some of you work with people that are warped and crooked. Some of you might live with people who are warped and crooked. You might have neighbors who are warped and crooked. You know a better way, a good way, the right way, but they're still far from God. A warped and crooked generation is a generation that is blameworthy. They're guilty of, of sin in their behavior and their conduct. They're perverse. They're immoral. And they're not really fun people to be around. Christians, Paul says, listen, Christians are called to be blameless. Christians are called to be holy. Christians are called to be pure. 
That's a whole concept that some of us learned in catechism and other studies. We are set apart. Here's the world, warped and crooked, a mess. Here's those who are Christians in Christ, set apart from the world. Not to be warped, not to be crooked, but to live a straight kind of life. We as Christians do not write letters grumbling. We do not write letters that have verbal venom that seeks to destroy. Christians don't do that. Christians meet together and work out their differences together. We do not dance to the devil's music. We just don't. Christians are set apart. Fourth question in verse 15, as we seek to understand our conduct, are you shining like stars in the sky? Boys and girls, you like stars? You see them at night? Some of you go camping? And when you're camping, maybe by the fire, or just get away from the fire, you're lucky, and you see all these beautiful stars in the sky. Now, if it's a cloudy night, you can't see the stars. But on a beautiful, clear night, you can see them, and try to start counting them and see how far you get. You are shining like stars in the sky. Are you shining? Paul says, listen, stop your grumbling. Stop your whining. You shouldn't be whining. You should be what? Shining. Right? You shouldn't be whining. You should be shining as stars. For many people, how we conduct ourselves is, is the only Jesus some people will ever see, you know. How we speak, how we act. We are the only stars that some people will ever see when it comes to Christian conduct. Our vision statement is about lives being transformed by Christ. To share with others how our lives, how you personally have been transformed by Christ. And that's the gospel we bring. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Confession, repentance, and faith. Someone here this morning, somebody listen, you might say, well, you know, pastor, I hear you talking, and I agree with you. I live in a world that's warped and crooked, and, and maybe I've been living in that kind of world for too long and hanging out with all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. You don't have to live in that warped and crooked place. No, we have to live in it, but you don't have to become part of it. There's new life in Christ. A life that you've never experienced before, where you no longer did to have a desire to be warped and crooked and to enjoy this stuff, but you step into the set-apart group and learn as Christians how to shine like stars even when you still have friends and neighbors who are warped and crooked. Because they're going to look at you, and surely, as I've had in my life, people are going to say to you things like, how come you don't get drunk when you drink? How come you don't get high on drugs? How come you're not seeking self-gratification and self-indulgence in your life? How come you seem to care more about me than I do about myself? What is this thing that you have that makes it different than everybody else in the world? I want some of that. How do I get it? God's opening the door for you to transform a life. Because people eventually come to a place who are part of the warped and crooked world who understand that's not a very happy place to be to live in or to die in. And by God's grace, when their heart becomes open to that, by watching you as one of the stars that are shining, 
You have the opportunity to say, let me tell you about Jesus and how he's affected my life. Now, you're not going to see a perfect person, right? I'm still working out my salvation. But I'm going to love you no matter what you do. I'm going to love you. I'm going to continue to be your friend because I want you to have what I have, and I know you would like it as well. Shining like the stars in the sky. Verse 16, another question we asked regarding the condition of our, as, as Christians, are you holding firmly to the word of life? Now, if you first got to step back and say, okay, what, what is he talking about? Holding firmly to the word of life. What word of life? Most commentators, scholars kind of argue over, well, are they talking about Jesus as the word of life? Because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and Jesus is life. Or is he talking about the Bible, right? The living, the living word of God. I'm kind of in the school of those who believe that Paul is talking about the Bible here as the word of life. Holding firmly to the word of life because as we live in a warped and crooked world, the one thing we need to do is to hold firmly to biblical truth. It's always in every generation been under attack, and it is again today. Holding firmly to biblical truth. We don't hold on to the word of God loosely. It's just not another book. and It's just not as some people want to do, we tear out certain pages of it because we don't like what it says. You don't hold loosely. Uh, you don't have standards, biblical standards, but then not living up to them. You don't hold on to it loosely. You don't, as a number of people are doing, even yet today, you don't twist the scriptures to make them say what you want them to say, that you can live a certain way. And this deals with, with a whole issue of same-sex marriage and the like. There are so many people, even friends of mine, colleagues in ministry, who now have twisted the word of God to say that it's okay. Same-sex marriage is okay. Identifying your gender as you see it is okay. So many people involved, so many people inappropriately misunderstanding and twisting the scriptures. And I want to say this very clearly this morning because this is now going on in our own denomination. Uh, churches, Christian Reformed churches, making appeals to the highest church body, which is our synod. Some people who want to compromise truth for the sake of unity. Okay, it's, it's called, if you read the banner at all, or, or at all following what's happened in synod and since, there, there are, now, there are some pastors advocating this. Okay, there are people who believe that same-sex marriage is okay. It's not a salvation issue, they say. It's a conduct issue. Never separate the two. Some say it's okay. And, and they're, they're faithful in every other way. And those others who are saying, no, the Bible is very clear in Romans chapter 1 that it's not okay. And we're not going to say that it's okay. It's inappropriate conduct for a Christian. So you have two sides. Now there are pastor friends of mine who say, can't we all just get along? How about this, they say. We have two sides. What they're saying is we have two truths. This is their truth. This is our truth. Let's all continue to, to worship together and to be one because unity was very important to Jesus and allow people to think differently on this matter. What, what do you think about that? 
they're trying to compromise biblical truth for the sake of unity. And you never, ever compromise biblical truth for the sake of unity. Biblical truth always stands superior. We thank God that, that in our highest body this year, at our synod this year, they held firmly the truth. We're going to lose a lot of churches, Christian Reformed churches, because they're over here. We need to let, let them go. If not, we'll be asking them to leave because you can't have two truths. Thank God that our synod this year decided to affirm biblical truth over unity in this regard. And you can continue to trust and have faith in the synodical business that's happened, that we're on the right path and they're holding firmly to the truth. Uh, synod 2023 affirmed this. And finally, verse 17 and 18. Is your life being poured out like a drink offering? Now, I wasn't real familiar with that terminology. So what is, what is Paul meaning when he's telling the church in Philippi and telling us this morning that, that, he, that he's a drink offering? Well, back in the Old Testament, uh, about Exodus 16, right in there someplace, we find that the, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were, were all about sacrifices because they didn't have the sacrifice in Christ as we did. So they had to go through all of these rituals, these sacrifices. And this would be on the altar, and that would be on the altar, and this would be on the altar, and there would be a fragrant offering to God. At the end of all the offerings, they would take a jug of wine and pour it on the altar. And what that did is say, now we are finished with our sacrifice. And it shows that the sacrifices were complete once the wine was poured on the altar. Paul says, listen, now you can see how this relates to his life. He's been a faithful pastor, missionary his whole life. He's working with the church in Philippi that he's planted. He says, listen, in that same sense, even though I don't practice these sacrifices anymore because the one sacrifice has been sacrificed for me, which is why we don't follow those Old Testament traditions. He says, listen, I see my life as sacrifice and service to you, my friends in Philippi, that it's getting close to completion. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. My time is nearly complete with you. And we talk about a drink offering. He says, I'm not talking about a drink offering that is given with a poison that we drink from, from anonymous letters. That's poison. Don't drink from that. He says, your life is an offering. It's an offering. It's a sacrifice. It's a matter of service. And we here at Community as a Body, together, Paul says, I can rejoice as my life is almost completed in service and my life is a drink offering. And as we continue to do ministry here and in years ahead, we rejoice with each other for the work of ministry that we do until it is completed. And of course, it's never completed until Jesus returns. In that sense, we too are like a drink offering that is being offered. Those six questions... Um, and you've probably been in the examination room long enough. No one likes hanging out with a doctor too long because they're always going to find something else, I think, right? It's just, oh, wait a minute, he'll say. Oh, and then wait a minute. Or the person who comes in first and does all the questions and all the asking, they have a few more questions. How did you do this morning with those six questions? Now, this isn't a look at your neighbor thing or front or behind you. This is just a your thing now. Let's talk about Christian conduct. How did you answer those six questions? 
when I go see the doctor in a couple weeks, well, he'll call me and, all right, time to come in. Let's go over the report. I already know what he's going to say. What do you think he's going to say? Your blood sugar is high. And he, he says, you don't have to tell me what you've been eating. I can tell you. And then an I and your wife tell you you're not supposed to be eating that. Well, now, of course, I'm finding out people are telling me, well, this is how you can get around it. There's these little tricks you can do. Before you go in for the, for the checkup, there's, there's a little a trick you can do so that it, what, it's what you eat like two days prior. So just watch that and then you'll be clear. Yeah, you don't want to do that either, right? There are results and, and I wonder what the results are as well as you hear these six questions this morning. This, this, this whole idea of your conduct. And the challenge that I see from this passage is as you consider the results of the, of the spiritual examination regarding your conduct, that this is God wants you to do. He says, listen, I need you to identify areas of concern in your own life regarding conduct. We all have them. Could be a number of them mentioned this morning. Look at your Christian conduct right now and identify the areas that need attention. Because you may be at a different place than someone else and it's what you're struggling with right now. And if need be, what you need to do is repent. Confession and repentance. Because you want to become more like Jesus. That's what Philippians is all about, right? To live as Christ. Identify those areas. And it's not going to help you at all if you don't make the necessary changes. You can go on living the way you have and it's going to hurt you and it's going to destroy you. Or you can... Have your eyes enlightened by what the scriptures have said and change some behavior. Because when your life is transformed by Christ, it's an ongoing process. God continues to transform us one day after the next, working out our salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we live a life worthy of the gospel in, in a generation that is warped and in a generation that is crooked. And just as we sang during the offertory, all for the glory of God, all for the glory of God the Father, for the glory of God the Son, and for the glory of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Ah, help us to be obedient to it. It's easy to hear it. Not always easy to hear it. But we take it in, but sometimes we don't do what it says. Father, as Christ showed us what perfect obedience looks like, help us to put into practice what we've heard. And help each one of us as, as we grow in Christ and becoming more like Christ. And as the Holy Spirit, as we partner with the Holy Spirit and working out our salvation to make us more and more Christ-like so that people will see that we are like stars shining in the darkness. And maybe someone this week, as we leave this place, We'll see how we are shining in their presence and we'll ask, what do you have? Because whatever you have, I want. And may that be an open door to present the gospel so that one more life can be changed. In Jesus' name, everyone say.